right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F that. You don't got time to say. All right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320-KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Lynn Gillespie. I'm Derek Johnson here on FM 1017 and 1320-KLWN. We're going to be joined by Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World coming up at the top of the 4 o'clock hour. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports will join us at 440. We've got another KU football positional preview, deep dive, whatever you want to call it to get to. We'll do that at 5 o'clock. We're going to get into the running back position, which is certainly a uh, very interesting one for KU football and, and maybe the most talented group of any of the positions that KU has this year. We start off the show, this from Alex Markham of the rivals uh, uh basically equivalent of like we have Jayhawk slant here it's ute nation which that's the rivals you know sourced utah site um and he's reporting that after overtures from the big 12 numerous sources are saying that the remaining members of the pac-12 plan to announce they will be sticking together details are still to be ironed out as the conference works on a new television deal with full faith behind new commissioner george klafkoff Still, the reality is that it will be a short-term deal, and the conference has a couple years to figure things out. Even with the news, a bigger move is still likely in the works. This buys teams like Oregon, Washington, Stanford, and Utah time to bet on themselves and make their brand more attractive as the consolidation of conferences is still in its relative infancy. For teams like Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, and Utah, the Big 12 will remain an option. Still, the belief is Utah would rather stay attached to the schools in the Northwest, and it's increasingly looking like feelings are mutual. So essentially, to kind of recap everything that was just said there. Like a TLDR, or I guess in this case a TLDL. What's that? Too long, didn't listen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Essentially, this, you know, to sum that up, like it, it means that they would announce they're sticking together. It means that... You know, maybe they'll announce a new TV deal, um, but it doesn't sound like it's a guarantee that they'll stick together forever. It's like a short-term thing. I don't know. It's kind of weird. Um, but basically, I think the idea of all that would be, you know, if they announce they're sticking together, then maybe it helps them with the TV deal. I mean, if you're, if you're, you know, whatever company is going to be bidding on them for the TV deal, I would imagine they're writing into the contract that if, you know, X amount of teams leave or, or whatever happens, like we're going to have fall throughs for this, knowing that this could be a possibility. But certainly, if you're someone who wants to bid on the TV deal, like you're going to want to give more money based on the idea, based on the fact that the conference is staying together. Right. The thing is, like, I did some extensive research on their current TV deal. Um, and it's uh, about two hundred fifty million a season. 
um, which is not bad. Uh, they wanted that doubled though in their next contract, like to five hundred million a season. You know, part of me was thinking it's a little bit generous, a little bit ambitious, maybe a little bit too greedy. Do you think that's partially why some teams are thinking about you know maybe that's a little bit too much, or the fact that they want it to be higher? Or maybe okay, my mind's going all over the place on this now, but um, but I just think the thing is that. Maybe that that was a little too greedy. They need to try to settle for something to keep their conference still aligned the way that they would like it to. Obviously, USC, UCLA being gone, that's not going to help at all. But with the teams that they have left, I think they have to kind of settle for something maybe a little bit larger than what they already have. But I wouldn't say just double it outright to $500 million a year. Well, I mean, yeah, what's interesting there is that I, I don't know. I'm wondering if it is going to be a pretty exorbitant sum because – if the money is is not much better, like why would they not go to the big? Two? I I don't know the answer to that. Um, but yeah, they're they're gonna have to announce that they're sticking together for that. I I guess the way that that whole thing was phrased makes me think that even if they announce they're sticking together, even if they are committed to sticking together for at least the short term, doesn't sound like they've eliminated the option of um not sticking together in the long term. It's almost like, you know, if you told your girlfriend like, I I, I promise we're committed. We're in a committed relationship, but I, I, I don't know what we're gonna do about marriage. Mm, so it's like, right? It's like, so are you committed long term or not? I, I don't know the answer there. So, um, based on the thing he said there, I, I thought that was very interesting about the TV deal specifically. The reality is that it will be a short term deal, and the conference has a couple years to figure things out. I mean, the thing is, it kind of has to be, given that you know there's already so much question about you know what's going to be the uh it's going to be the fate of the conference what's Mm -hmm. going to be the fate of the conference in the long term I think you kind of just like I mentioned you kind of just have to settle to try to at least keep it aligned over the next few years and as 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 unfortunate as that is going to be you kind of have to yeah so (laughs) if the tv deal is short term then I guess things would just open back up um, in a very soon timeline. And also, that's the other part of this. Like, I, I would almost think, though, like, if you're the, again, like, I guess it just depends. But if you're the TV partner, you know, you might be looking at the ACC's deal with ESPN and going, why don't we try to do something like that where we can string this together where we're guaranteed for this long commitment where it's going to be hard for anybody else to leave. But I guess maybe that's not really something that would appeal to the the current schools that are there that, you know, if that was what's going to happen, then maybe that would just make them want to leave more. Um, but if it's a short-term deal, like that's the other piece of this too that leads to believe that, you know, even if they're together for maybe another year or two, what's the future of it? I don't know because if it's, if it's a short-term deal, if it's a three-year TV contract and a team decides to leave the league, they can either just wait out the TV contract and it won't be that long or – they can just be like, hey, we'll pay the buyout. Like, it's not going to be that much money. It's only going to be, you know, we're leaving a year early, right? Um, but basically, this is a move from league members to say, like, let's prove we can do this. And, you know, let's prove that we are brands ourselves. Let's prove that that we can kind of keep the conference afloat ourselves. And, and keep in mind, too, like USC and UCLA are, are still going to be in the conference this year and I believe next year as well. Um but also part of this is, I'm sure, 
to see if they can add teams and, and try to stabilize similar to what the Big 12 did. Like, I'm sure they're sitting there today going, well, we saw the Big 12 undergo something similar last year. Slightly different situation, but kind of the end result. Like, you lose your two big money makers in the yeah. conference. And you saw the way that the Big 12 was able to go out and, and get some really good schools, whether it was Cincinnati and they make it to the college football playoff or BYU, who's very much like a, a big brand. And, and you add these teams, and, and it seems to have kind of buoyed the Big 12 in, in a certain way. Obviously, they're not near the level of where the Big 10 and the SEC are, and at this point never will be. But um, the way that that happens, it provides kind of a blueprint that, if you're the Pac-12 and, and you're some of these schools, I'm sure you're sitting there like, you know what, yeah, we can take the short-term contract. We'll figure it out later. Let's see who we can maybe add. Let's see if it adds anything to the TV revenue. Let's see how good of fits they are. Let's see if it can kind of stabilize us the same way. That's exactly what I think, and that's why uh, that's, I think that's what the step-by-step -step needs to needs to be. Well, that's exactly what they need to do because they do kind of – I know that they want to compete against the other big conferences. SEC, Big Ten, especially, but they house. They also have to be real and know that they are not as good as those conferences right now. So what they have to do is just, like I said, settle, and figure something out, and I think that way to at least just make sure that you're not done in a year or two is to just get a short-term TV deal. Well, it basically means that. It's still, even if they do decide to come to a new TV deal, as long as it is short term, or even if they come out and say we're sticking together, that all kind of implies that it's not a foregone conclusion that any of these schools don't still wind up in the Big 12. Right. It just certainly seems as if... Could it know, delay that process? Exactly. I think that would be the point. Okay. Like, it wouldn't happen for a few years or, or several years down the road. That would be the one thing. Instead of it happening, you know, like this month or, or something like that, it would just be something that maybe we find out about in like 2024, 2025 or whatever. And, and that kind of lines up, if you think about it, um, the years that would make sense. So kind of the the big domino that's still out there right now. And I don't know how much of a, a real domino they are because... To really every point, every time we get conference realignment, every time we get the rumors of, of all this stuff, the school that gets brought up immediately, and it makes sense because they're an independent, is Notre Dame. Because Notre Dame is, is such a huge brand. You know, they're one of the most recognizable, one of the top brands in college football. I don't know. They might even be number one in terms of recognizability uh, across the country. Obviously, they're not the most successful, but in terms of recognizability and brand, like they're certainly one of the most successful in the country. Um, so they get brought up every time realignment happens and every time so far they have just kind of stiff armed any of that conversation. They've just kind of knocked it to the side. Like, no, we're happy where we are. Um, we're in a situation where, you know, NBC sports or whatever TV provider is going to pay us like we are a conference to, to have the, the exclusive rights on, on our games and that they're going to make so much money and they don't have to worry about what other league members are going to do. They don't have to worry about being in a situation like, I don't know, I'm sure there there's a, a piece of if you're like Alabama or LSU, like there, there's probably a piece of those schools that's like, why are we getting paid the same amount of money that Vanderbilt yeah. and some of these other schools are getting? Um, Notre Dame doesn't have to worry about that. So, so far, they they have not really seemed to, to show any interest in actually joining a conference. Who knows what the long-term play of the SEC and Big Ten are if it's those – 
you know, sometimes rumored things about breaking away from the NCAA and what that would mean. Uh, would that make it more likely for Notre Dame to jump aboard because they wouldn't want to be left behind? I don't know, but that seems to be kind of a holdup. And, and the Big Ten obviously would love to get Notre Dame, as would anyone. Um, Notre Dame, though, actually has like these tie-ins and an agreement with the ACC for the next couple of years. And if you remember, you know, for a while, Notre Dame was was playing Big Ten teams all the time yeah. in, in football. You know, they're playing Michigan. They're playing Michigan State every year, right? Um, or whoever, whatever teams. They came to an agreement um, with the ACC, and I don't know if this was over COVID or if this was just in general, about um you know having certain contract games like like playing a certain amount of ACC teams a year and okay. in their other sports you know baseball basketball so forth they play in the ACC um i now, think they they were already a part of the ACC with those sports right yeah yeah they already have been okay that's what um, I thought. other than football which they're independent mhm now Notre Dame's football contract with ACC like this is kind of interesting obligates them to play five ACC schools per season. It mm. prohibits them from joining any other conference besides the ACC through the 20, 2036 season. But that was about to expire after the 2022 season. So I don't get how that works. Yeah. You can't join <laughs> a conference for the next 14 years, even though this deal expires in 2022. I, I Take the word for it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, what? That's, that's, that's what that sounds like. That doesn't really make sense to me. Um, nonetheless, unless it's like, a, it, it'll end here and we can renegotiate or keep it that way, possibly. Yeah. Maybe that makes sense. Nonetheless, they, uh, extended out that deal and it expires in a few years now. So no deal is, is perfect, right? Because you can just pay your way out of it. There's always clauses you can buy your way out of it, or it could just be something like what's happening with Texas and Oklahoma. They're joining the sec. They're just waiting out the end of the the Big 12 media rights deal, and then they're going to join, or at some point maybe they will pay a buyout. We'll find out. Um, the thing with Notre Dame is that, you know, if that does end up happening to the Big 10, maybe the timeline for that is like 2024, 2025. And if that's the case, that could be the potential holdup. That could be the potential big domino that leads to other things happening because now all of a sudden if Notre Dame decides to to join the Big 10 in 2025 – and then the Big Ten's like, all right, now we'll add you Oregon and Washington. We just wanted to make sure we got Notre Dame too. Then the Pac-12 is back in shambles. Then more movement happens. And that's where it ties back in with a shorter-term contract, a shorter-term media deal. That basically it would allow these schools to reopen themselves up in a few years, whether it's for some big piece of realignment news like Notre Dame, whether it's for when the Big 12 media rights would be up so that they could kind of hop on board with that. Like, there are a lot of reasons that you could target a short term, and I would just imagine that once we get to, you know, that 2025, 2026 season, because that's when, like, the Big 12 media rights are up, unless they move theirs up, which at this point I don't know why you would do, um, because if the ship has sailed on the Pac-12 stuff, right. there's, there's not really another reason to. Um, but at that point that feels like the big date that this would all happen. So it's kind of, it's interesting because you circle everything that's happened this year. And certainly the way that these last two big, 
movements have happened with Texas and Oklahoma and USC and UCLA. They've been so incognito. They've been so quiet. And then all of a sudden, it's just one day. Okay, here they're leaving for another conference. Like that could very well happen. We uh, Next summer, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll get two more teams or the summer after that or whatever. But I would imagine the big chaos would probably happen in two, three, four years, something like that. So uh, do you think... Oh wait! When did you say Notre Dame? Notre Dame's ends in like twenty twenty four, twenty twenty five, something like that. Okay, because I'm just trying. I'm trying to think of what could possibly be the scenario. I I no doubt agree with you that Notre Dame is the biggest domino in this whole thing because of how big of a school they are already. What they have with the media rights and stuff like that. They're the only freaking football team that is on NBC on a regular basis. So the media rights for Notre Dame would would be a frenzy for everybody else to want to follow suit if they joined a conference for football. So um, I, I just, the quite the thing to me is just like, I, I just don't know if that's going to happen or if Notre Dame wants to, if the, if they want to join a conference for football or if they want to continue to being that independent team that already has the media rights with NBC uh, and something like that. Uh, I don't know if we've heard a whole lot about what Notre Dame wants to do. Have we? No, I mean, I mean, they're not going to just come out and play their cards and be like, hey, we're planning on joining in 2025. So, right. you know, they're, I, I don't know. But yeah, I think the, I, I don't think, think we know what anyone wants to do. <laughs> that's fair. I, I just think the whole thing has been um, we haven't heard much about Notre Dame wants to go here, here and here. It's just the question of what could this mean for Notre Dame, who's been a very big football school for decades. Well, I, I think that the way this is going, it certainly seems like the Big 12 is going to be left kind of high and dry with these Pac-12 teams, at least in the near term. Like I said, once we open things back up in a couple of years, like maybe that's um, you know more opportunity there. But it's a little different than in years past when the Big 12 kind of failed to um, take advantage of, of realignment and, and be the aggressor because you know this time they, they seem to have tried really hard, but maybe it just didn't come together in execution whereas in years past they just didn't really even try unfortunately though the result of both of those would be the same that the big 12 is unable to strike while the iron's hot so that's unfortunate for brett yormack and the big 12 if, if this stuff really is true and that they're not able to now i will say all that stuff i just said you know we've gone we, we've talked about all these different rumors all these different things all these different reports you can get reports on both sides uh, this stuff will make your head spin and, and to be completely honest like i don't really think many people know but we're here in July, and there's stuff to talk about. Right. I will say this. Um, <laughs> if you're the Big 12 and, and you're unable to get any of these Pac-12 schools out of this, which, again, feels like the way this is going to be, what do you do from here? Do you just sit tight right now with, you know, for this year it'll be 10. Um, next year it'll – is UCF and them joining next year? Yes. I've lost track of dates. Yes. Okay, so next year. 2023 is when they're joining. Okay, so next year it'll be 14 with OU and Texas – and then a couple years after that, it'll be back down to 12. Do you sit tight with those numbers? Do you try to add some non-Power 5 teams? What would you do if you were Brett Yormack right now? I would say keep those Pac-12 teams in mind, but for the time being, uh, stay put. Only just because um, I know having 12 teams has been the focus for a while. And I know, I, I think the thing is, like, they also want to see, you know, how it's going to be with 
You know, having 14 teams, I think to me, like for a season or two, is going to be a trial run to see how it would work. I think I think that's actually where you go with that. I, I, I say wait until there are 12 teams left and then make your decision because having 14 teams, to me, that would be a good trial run to figure out if the conference can handle 14 teams on a stable basis. Um, they can give out still a wealthy amount of money or if they're going to lose or gain money in that kind of situation. Um, I say wait until there are 12 teams and then figure out who you want to add. I would be aggressive. I'd be going for some people. And and part of the reason is because you're almost in an arms race with with the Pac-12 right now where it's like, who's going to be in a better situation in in three years or something to possibly maybe, who knows, cannibalize the other? Um, And maybe... The thing is, as much as I agree with you, I just have seen aggressiveness to a fault. So that's just the one thing. Well, in what I've regard? Been. I mean, th- what I mean is, like, you can be too aggressive and have it bite you in the butt um, with the I fact guess like, of. Like, how? Like, because I, I don't know. Well, I mean, okay. Um, oh, man. Maybe I'm talking out of my rear end. But um, I, I just think the reason of that is, like, I don't want them to be aggressive to a fault to the point of where. You have so many teams on your plate right now, and in the end, some teams are not going to be happy that they're um, not getting as much money as they would like. I mean, that's that's a possibility that you add more teams, and, and yeah, the, the slices of the pie become a little bit smaller. Um, that's definitely a real conversation that you have to ha- have. to have. Um, outside of that, though, like I, I don't know, because I, I, I see the Pac-12 right now, and, and I would imagine they're going to be trying to add teams. Like, they're going to try to add you know, San Diego State or SMU or Boise State or, or whoever. Well, I mean, the thing is, Pac, the Pac-10 is looking mm-hmm. for an expansion because they need that. I don't know if the Big 12 really needs that. It would be an, it would be nice. I just don't know if they need that. No, they don't need it. But the point here to me is that if you have the opportunity to cut off the Pac-12's ability to add some of these people, then all of a sudden you hamstring them. And then all of a sudden, you're in a situation where maybe those Pac-12 teams in a couple of years, because they weren't able to expand with good teams that helped out their media contract or helped out the stability of the conference because you struck on them before they could, then all of a sudden, as the Big 12, you bring on those Pac-12 schools. So that's kind of how I'm viewing it. I'm viewing it, if you if you go make the move before them, then you really limit their options and hurt them even more, which further increases your chances of getting some of those schools over. And the one that I would be scared about losing, to be completely honest, would be SMU because that would get the Pac-12 into the Texas market. That would get the Pac-12 into the Dallas market. That would be bad news. It's one thing you lose San Diego State. They're in California. You know, Boise State, they're, you know, kind of nearby Utah and everything. That's fine. I I think that would be pretty bad for the Big 12 if they were to lose SMU. And, and I guess my point here is just that be aggressive because, you know, it's it, it's tough for me to look at what the Big 12 has done over the last 15 years and be like, yeah, you, you've operated so great. You've lost your big powers in Texas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Texas A&M. You've lost all these teams, and it's been at cost of not being aggressive enough. You know, I think you've convinced me. Okay. So, good job. <laughs> all right, here's Lane Gillespie. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. 
Did you know that on our website, klwn.com, as well as our sister stations, 1059kissfm.com, bull929.com, we have a program called Hometown Deals. So you click the tab, and it takes you to a magical place where gift cards are 50% off. We have handfuls of different restaurants and places that you can go to that you can get a 50% off gift card to. So just go to the website, click Hometown Deals, and you'll see some of those gift cards for 50% off. If you're a business and interested in being part of this as well and getting featured ads at no cash price and just gift card cost, shoot us an email, djohnson at gpmnow.com. Four o'clock hour. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN with Lane Gillespie. I am Derek Johnson, joined now by Matt Tate of Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. Um, there have been some reports, and, and to be clear here, you know, everything we've seen from realignment will just make your head spin because you hear one thing one way, another another way, whatever. Uh, that the Pac 12 might be staying together now. Uh, let's just say that that is the case. Do, Matt, do you think the Big 12's best path moving forward? Would to just be sit tight and just kind of wait and see if the Pac-12 or, or ACC get rated? Or do you think the Big 12 should be aggressive in, in even adding a few more schools from the group of five, like a San Diego State, Boise State, Memphis, SMU, or whoever? No, I don't think you add just to add. Um, I, I, think that, I, I think that you have to be strategic about it. I think that you have to take schools that make sense. I think you have to take schools that, that – you know, want to be with you, not just because it's a safe haven, you know, like like those group of five schools would obviously jump to get into any of the quote-unquote power five schools. But, um, but, but, yeah, I think sitting tight would make a lot of sense. I mean, you have to look at it this way. The only thing that's changed is that the Big Ten got richer. But the Big Ten was already really rich and going to be one of the top two conferences, and the SEC obviously was there and going to be the other. So it's not like all of a sudden it's full-on panic mode um, unless you create it that way. So I think that sitting tight makes a lot of sense. If the Pac-12 is is, uh, determined to, to stick it out and see what happens, and, and, you know, I have my doubts about that, too. Um, it sounds like there is a, uh, a, a decent chunk of that, that conference that would like to stick together, but I'm not sure that's the entire conference. And so I think you let that play out the way it will, let that play out, you know, sort of in a natural way. And, and if at the end of it, whether that's at the end of some sort of television negotiations or continued efforts to, to you know, remain united or, or both, um, if at the end of that, whether that's two weeks, two years, whatever it is, if there's still a couple of schools, and you know, obviously the Arizona schools and maybe Colorado, maybe Utah, I mean, if those schools are still interested in joining the Big 12, then you open open your doors and open your arms and say, let's do this. You know, but you don't have to. You don't have to rush to add because you were thinking about adding them. I, I don't think that's a smart way of doing business, and I and I don't think it's necessary either. Well, I guess I just I, I go back. There was a report last year from CBS Sports about the Big Twelve possibly looking to add you know Boise State and Memphis, uh, but for a second round of realignments in twenty twenty four. So that was already right, like right. on the 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 ledger, and I just wonder now. I, I, I don't know how much this matters. Like, to your point, we, we don't really know. Like, do some of the Pac-12 teams still want to leave? We're going to wait and find out. Um, but 
if if you're the Big 12 and you're sitting here and you're watching the Pac-12 and you ideally want to have some of those schools eventually come over, whether it's now, whether it's in a few years, like, don't you think it would be the, the Big 12's best situation for the Pac-12 not to be able to stabilize? And to that point, like, what if the Pac-12 goes out there and adds SMU and that gets them into the Texas market in Big 12 area and they add whatever, Boise State or San Diego State or whoever, and they're able to stabilize a little bit similarly to the Big 12 where, you know, they're, they're not right, as good right. shape as they were. Uh, wouldn't it benefit the Big 12 to get out in front and almost take some of the candidates that the Pac-12 would be looking at? Oh, there's no doubt in my mind. I 100% agree with that. I mean, I, I've thought that from the beginning. If if you can strike and and wound, so to speak, your your opponent or your competition, I, I don't think there's any reason not to do that. Um, but that has to be a two way street. You have to offer, and they have to be willing to leave. And and uh, I don't I don't know this to be true, but it, it sure sounds like the Big Twelve has made it you know, at least somewhat clear that, that they'd be willing to, to add certain schools. And at that point, it has to be a reciprocal thing, right? Those schools have to have to say we're in. And once they're in, if, if you know, if, if the Big 12 says to the Arizona schools, Colorado and Utah, we'll take you. All you have to do is apply. You've got the votes. We'll take you. Then I think that could happen in a day or two, right? I mean, it, it would go quickly at that point. But um, the fact that, that that's not happening, I, I think it does show you that that there's still a little bit of work to be done. And, and I'm not sure, like I said a minute ago, I, I mean, attack, attack, attack. I think that makes a lot of sense. But I'm not sure that there's much that the Big 12 can do to further entice them, right? I mean, you're not going to give them more revenue. You're not going to give them, uh, you know, special privileges. I mean, there's just no reason to do that. So you can't really turn it into a sweeter deal than it already is. And therefore, if they're not ready to say, yes, we'll jump, then, then you just do, you do have to wait it out. But, but, you know, if it's a matter of, of picking up some phone calls and building, or I mean, picking up the phone, making a call, building some excitement and enthusiasm and momentum, and maybe you call, you know, I believe Rick George is the AD at, at CU. I mean, maybe you call him and you say, hey, man, we can have a great time. And you map out all these pool parties and, and, you know, all this stuff. And, Maybe you get him fired up. I don't know, um, but you know, short of that working, I, I don't. I don't think you can do a whole lot else. At least at this point, to to really turn this thing into into anything other than what it already is on paper and, and what it very clearly and obviously is to them. They realize the benefits. I think it's just a matter of um, making sure they weigh the the, the the option of moving to the Big Twelve with you know, what they could be leaving behind or losing by leaving the Big 12 or the Pac-12. So, um, yeah, but I think at, at, at this point, and I've thought this for the last couple of weeks for sure, I mean, anything the Big 12 can do to add uh, uncertainty and, and chaos, if you will, to the Pac-12 or the ACC, you should be doing it as long as it's legal, you know, as long as it's all, you know, within the realm of good practices and stuff like that. I, I think you should do it um, just because that further stabilizes your situation. And, and, and that's what everybody's looking for right now is security, stability, and, and comfort. We're talking with Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com here. 
on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Uh, Texas Tech made an announcement for a $200 million stadium renovation project. And we were just talking about something on, on the previous side about, you know, what teams are, are most uh, vulnerable for KU, not just to try to beat this year and get a conference win, but in general for KU to, you know, kind of move up the ladder of the Big 12 and, and be a team that's consistently winning four, five, six, seven games, going to consistent bowl games every other year, whatever it is, you know, you're going to have to pass some other programs in terms of of where you are in the conference. And um, it's hard for me not to see this and, and you know, think that KU is going to need to invest more in the football program for that to happen. So how important is it for KU to undergo something similar uh, with this Texas Tech news that really has been on hold ever since Shehan Zanger proposed it and then, you know, other stuff happened from then on? Yeah, I mean, it's critical. There's no question. And, and, and what's more important than just saying that is the fact that everybody should understand that KU – the KU's leadership knows that it's not. It's not like their heads in the sand and they don't understand it or they don't know what what needs to be done. It's very clear to them too. It's it's a matter of how do you get there, and uh, you know you're you're not talking about a little bit of money either. I mean you're talking about fundraising and and you know getting people to commit to a program that it just isn't there yet. It hasn't shown. Anything for people to get excited about. Now, I do believe that Lance Leipold and and you know the the direction of the program is is in a better spot than it has been in a while right now. But that's still something that you can get excited about and maybe buy season tickets and show up as a fan and feel good about. Um, it's a totally different thing to say, yeah, sure, I'll give you fifty million dollars because of that. You know that that's that's difficult. And and so I, I think that. Um, I think that it's it's super important that KU does something, though. I, I think you know if it were me, and and I wrote this uh, today when I when I saw that that Texas Tech news yesterday. Because look, Texas Tech has finished closer to Kansas in the Big Twelve standings on a more consistent basis than any other program in the Big Twelve in in football. And so you're talking about a lot of eighth and ninth place finishes by Texas Tech, and yet here they are. With an already pretty decent stadium, throwing two hundred million more at it. I mean, you know, if that doesn't get your attention, I don't know what will. I mean, and and the timing of it's no joke, right? Like Texas Tech's name has been thrown out there, whether it's purely a wicked rumor or or maybe there's some merit to it. I mean, could the Big Ten look at Texas Tech? I have no idea, but it would make a lot of sense for the Big Ten to be interested in getting into Texas if they can. And so, obviously, you know, you can't have Texas. You can't have Texas A&M. There's a couple other schools down there that they might consider. TCU, Texas Tech, probably not Baylor, but maybe Houston even. I mean, you know, there's the, the, the list of schools that they could even consider is pretty small. But if you're Texas Tech and you throw this kind of statement of commitment to football, out there at the very time that realignment is raging, it, it, I just don't think that's a coincidence. So I think it was well played by Tech. Uh, I think their their announcement, their rollout of this uh, this news was phenomenal. Uh, it made a splash. There was a whole freaking thirty minute you know announcement show uh, hosted by some of their internal staff that featured uh, interviews with the AD and the head coach and uh, some 
I mean, that was crazy. And and you you can't say that they uh, they aren't being aggressive in in their desire to show how serious they are about football. And and right now, that is the name of the game. That is the most critical part of this whole thing. And and um, that's something that Kansas has been lacking. Uh, significantly for for the last several years to a you know a decade or more. Um, I don't doubt that Travis Goff understands how important it is and wants to commit and figure out ways to do it. Um, but again, it takes time and it takes money and and um, it's not just as easy as snapping your fingers and going and getting a four hundred million dollar loan. You know that that's bad business probably and and I don't know that you could even get that. So. Um, it, it, they've got to get creative. They've got to find a way. But but my opinion is they've got to do something. And and if if the the, the renovation of Memorial Stadium was always going to be done in phases, um, and maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Maybe maybe you know over the the last decade the different uh, plans and 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 hopes for what they could do there um, with different leadership and things of that nature. Um, maybe one of them or two of them had the idea of just tear it all down and build it all back up. I, I, I don't know. But but if it is a renovation thing that happens and it is in phases, I think phase one needs to at least be announced and celebrated and excited and, and, and you start pumping out that, that, that energy behind it. I mean, you know, yesterday is not too soon for that. I mean, uh, I think that's an important part of this because perception is reality to some degree. And, and if people are watching and trying to look for signs of your commitment, if you can throw this out there, um, boy, that's better than not doing anything. So uh, they've got a long way to go. The stadium thing's going to continue to be a, a, a really tricky, tricky thing for KU to navigate. But um, I think the sooner they can start at least moving forward with it, and, and then, therefore, building the excitement and getting some attention for commitment and all that stuff, uh, I think the better off they are. But, again, I, I'm not paid to make those decisions, and and uh, and I'm certainly not anyone in any position to donate any kind of money toward it. So I uh, I, I don't envy them in, in, in the task that they have at hand, and, and I, I recognize that it's a challenge. It's a real, real challenge. What do you think that project would look like, uh, though, for KU, like at this point, in terms of, like, what would be the goal of changing on the stadium? What would be the amount of money, the timeline, like what KU wants out of it and, and so forth? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. And, and it's so hard to know the answer to that because it's, it's um, you know, it, it, as I've learned over the years from different ADs and different leadership, right, it, you kind of have – one vision of well this this was kind of the plan at one point back in 2012 and well this was kind of what they were thinking in 2017 and you know and now here we are in, in 2022 and and you know we just it's just so hard to keep it all straight and 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 to have any feeling that any of it is able to be carried over or whatever so um you know i i think the the number one thing has to be the, the fan experience i think that's you know who this is for i mean obviously it's a commitment thing for the for the university and and all of that but i I think it has to be the fans that you are asking to show up to the stadium have to enjoy being there and and part of that is the results on the field and what what your product is but the other part of it is 
you know, hey, this is pretty cool. I enjoy this stadium. Look at all these new bells and whistles. This is great. You know, this was worth it. They might have lost, but uh, oh well, I had fun. You know, and and you got to do whatever you can do to to, to create that that reality for your fan base. Um, beyond that, though, I think and Zach Boyer, who uh, who does a great job covering KU football for us, back in May he wrote a a pretty pretty nice story about just sort of the last the the last decade of of this whole stadium conundrum and and uh you know the the headline was the long wait and that's what this has been it's been a long wait it's been it's been a challenge and and there's been a lot of reasons and he kind of rehashed those and laid them out and addressed all of them and then he got some thoughts from from Travis Goff about you know well what are you doing about it what 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 is in in your vision and and what what are your plans for for where to take this thing. And, and of course, you know, Travis wasn't in any position to say, well, let me show you my drawings, you know, or anything like that. I mean, they're not there yet. And even if they have them, they're not releasing them yet. But, um, but, but he made it very clear. And I thought this was really interesting. He made it very clear that one of their priorities is that this has to be a stadium that, that not only serves KU football and the university, but also maybe is something that can serve the community and and even the region to some degree, and so that that, that gets you thinking, you know, bigger, right? And and maybe there's a joint effort between the city and the university, and and you know, again, this is all over my head. I don't really know how this works or if it works, but but the idea that that giving the entire community a reason to get behind the stadium because it could benefit more than just football. That to me makes a lot of sense, and I, and I think is a, is a is a pretty good way to go. Um, now, there's probably some pitfalls there, and you got to have some some things work out and go your way, and and come to some agreements and cooperation and all of that stuff. That that is certainly not automatic or easy. Um, but I like the vision. I like that that's what he's thinking, and I like that that's what they're they're kind of shooting for, at least conceptually, because. Um, you know, that, that, that maybe gets you a little closer to doing something unique and, and doing something big that, that, that actually has a chance to, to, to get from the starting point and, and an idea all the way to, to actually being finished. So, you know, fan experience is one, but, but that, that dual duality of, of how it serves the university and the community, I, I think that's a really, really interesting thing. And I was glad he shared that. I mean, I think they should, they should be bold. They should be forthright. They should be willing to share more and more and more each week, each month, each year, because people are interested in, in, Hey, what are you going to do? And, um, you know, this, as soon as you have any good ideas that, that you're going to try to execute, shout them from the mountaintop and get on there and, and, and do what Texas tech did and, and, and do a, do a huge announcement and renderings and rollouts. And even if it's just phase one, you can still, you can still blow that out. You can still make that a big deal. You can still get some attention by, by, you know, showing off what your, what your vision is. So I, I think, you know, it's a big, big undertaking. It really is. And, uh, it's, it's an important part of, of the future of, of the football program, but really the future of the university and maybe even the town. I mean, it's, it's a big deal. He is Matt Tate of Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. Matt, appreciate the time as always, man. Yeah, man. Thank you. Have a good rest of the week. And, uh, I guess good luck following the realignment stuff. If you hear anything good, let me know, though, all right? (laughs)
I see so many things, and uh, I don't know which ones to believe. It's just I said anything good. Yeah, yeah if you, that'll help you wade through some of it. Yeah, anything good? I don't know. I don't know if there's anything that I'll be sending you. But uh, Matt, good, I appreciate it point. once again, man. <laughs> All right, Derek. Thanks, man. Have a good one. All right, that's Matt Tate, Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN, depending on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com, and we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. About 20 till 5, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Joined now by Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports here on the show. Uh, Big 12 Media Day is coming up here tomorrow. And we saw the Big 12 preseason poll. Uh, five teams received at least one first place vote. And funny enough, um, one of the teams that you know we here thought that uh, could have received maybe a first-place vote as a kind of dark horse pick, especially over Iowa State, was Kansas State, and they didn't get one. So uh, pretty much that points to how wide open the league is for not just who makes it to the Big 12 championship game, but who possibly wins the league this year. Kevin, do you think that gets reflected by what ends up happening this season in the Big 12 where you know the teams who win it or or teams who are in the conference title game have two or three losses how do you kind of see things playing out in the conference this year at the top yeah i i think that's exactly right and you know for the record i think the iowa state vote you know was probably a a balloting error or somebody (laughs) who felt like they had to had to vote for iowa state for whatever reason you know certain people I'm not saying the Big 12, but certain people feel like they have to to vote for a certain team every every year or whatever. I I'm pretty sure that that person does not actually believe that Iowa State will win the league this year, and if they do, you know, may may the Lord have mercy on their soul. But <laughs> but but I mean, it, I think you're absolutely right in that there isn't a team that, as of this point, looks like a legitimate national title or college football playoff contender. And that doesn't mean necessarily, hey, the top Big 12 team is going to rank 15th in the country. But it, it does mean maybe that, you know, bottom part of the of the top 10, you know, or, or right around that or, or whatever. And, and to be honest with you, I, I think that it's such a fascinating league year in that I'm not sure there are any really bad teams like legitimately like really bad teams. And I'm not sure there are any great teams. And that creates this sort of amazing cluster in the middle where, like you were saying, there are probably five or so teams that feel like if circumstances hit right, they're going to, they're going to be there in that big 12 title game. And at the same time, you know, the, the next five down, you know, you have a couple of them that, that maybe feel like, Hey, if things go right, we can get seven or eight wins. And, and then you have a few that say, well, you know, we could go anywhere from, from say, last to, to seventh or eighth. And so it, it really is about as wide open, I, I feel like, as as you've seen it, not just for the league title, but but maybe even one through ten, Derek. Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely wild. And, and to your point, I, I would be kind of surprised if, if any team emerged as um, – 
uh, a possible college football playoff contender uh, in that situation. So which team do you feel like does have the highest ceiling among those title contenders? And, and which team do you feel like maybe has the highest floor among those top teams? So, okay, I, I feel like I, ha- I have to preface this for a second. So you know that I, I help rank the high school kids throughout the state of Kansas, mm-hmm. you know, as part of my job at 24-7 Sports. And one of the things that we talk about quite a bit is potential versus chance to reach that potential. You know, yes, this guy has the ceiling to be really, really good, but but how likely is he to actually get there? And so if you combine those two things in this discussion, uh, I feel like Baylor is the team that jumps out that you would say is, is the league's favorite. You know, they they may have the best offensive and defensive lines in, in the conference. They have a lot of uh, a lot of really good athletes and, and move really well on the back end of defense. They've got playmakers on offense. And with Blake Shapin beating out, you know, Gary Bohannon, Jerry Bohannon, excuse me, you feel like maybe there's something there where Baylor is going to be able to to push the ball down the field a little bit better in the passing game than maybe they were even a year ago when they won the Big 12 title. Having said that, if you remove that component where you're looking at both of that and you just say, okay, who's got the highest ceiling? I think Texas has the highest ceiling. And stop me if you've heard this one before. But but I, I do think that you know when you look at the skill position talent that, that Texas already had, when you look at what they added through the transfer portal, when you look at the talented young linemen they have in that program, and then some of the pieces they added on defense, and you figure they really struggled defensively schematically last year, and it sounds like they they went through this offseason and and tried to make some changes in that department as well. You're going to see more press coverage and things like that 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 may allow Texas' athleticism to play up. And so if you're just asking straight up, who has the highest ceiling? If every box gets ticked for every team in the Big 12, who wins the league? I, I think it's Texas. But if you're asking me, hey, who actually has the best chance to win the Big 12, I, I would say Baylor. I, I uh, too, when I'm like looking at the non-conference schedules, it's, it's going to be some really good tests for the Big 12 teams and, and some of those top teams like Baylor. To your point, they play BYU and Texas has Alabama and all these things that uh, we're not just going to find out about these teams in conference play, but out of conference as well. So who would you say is is your Big 12 dark horse? That's a, that's a tough one because I, I feel like they aren't that dark of a horse, and yet in some ways I feel like nobody's really talking about them in that – uh, I think Oklahoma is a really interesting team in that some people I've seen in their rankings have even had Oklahoma outside of the top five, which is just crazy to me. And I think there's a possibility. I, I think Brent Venables is probably going to prove to be a good long-term hire. I think the physicality and the attitude and the culture and everything is probably going to be a, a better fit for what they're going to be encountering in the SEC. And when you look at, at some of the young players and young talent there, I feel like Oklahoma could be a very different team in November than it is in September. And so Oklahoma is kind of my dark horse. I know you mentioned Kansas State earlier. Kansas State, to me, is a really interesting team in that I feel like there are about 30 different outcomes for that team. Like, would it, it really wouldn't shock me if for whatever reason that, that Adrian Martinez has, you know, turnover problems like we've seen in the past, 
that the offense doesn't really come together at the level that maybe K State would hope, and and they wind up being a six and six or seven and team. And the flip side of that is, is it really wouldn't surprise me if you know Adrian Martinez really takes to a, a quarterback run friendly offense, you know, with Colin Klein that that Kansas State's defense really really kicks in and is among the Big 12's best. And, and Kansas State is the second team in that Big 12 title game. And so Kansas State, I feel like, maybe has the widest range of outcomes of any team in the conference. And one of those is to potentially be in the Big 12 title game. And so I think those are, those are kind of the two teams that jump out as dark horses for me. Talking with Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports. We were talking earlier in the show in relation to the Big 12 for KU. Obviously, um, for the Jayhawks, both from a program standpoint and more short-term, it's it's always trying to figure out which Big 12 teams can you beat because, hypothetically, in a nine-game conference schedule, even if you go 3-0 and in the non-con, you're going to have to beat three Big 12 teams, which is part of the difficulty for KU to make it to the bowl game. Um, not saying that's the expectation or, or whatever for KU this year. Obviously, the over-under win total is 2.5. We've said on this show, if you get four wins this year, that would obviously be a big deal for KU. It would be the most since Todd Reesing and Mark Mangino. Uh, but if you had to, if you had to categorize you know, a couple games or, you know, the top three games or whatever um, of Big 12 games that you think KU has the best chance to win this season, what ones come to mind? Yeah, it's it's really interesting, too, because I feel like we talk about this every year, that the game that Kansas competes in or, or has a chance to win a lot of times is not one that we necessarily pick before the season. You know, it, it just happens that, Oklahoma is flat that day and, you know, needs Caleb Williams to, to pull off a Superman play to escape Lawrence. And I don't think any of us, even with the, the 2016 win over Texas, would have picked Kansas to go into Austin last year and, and pull out a victory. And then with the way they ended the season with the close call against TCU, with the one-score loss against West Virginia – I feel like this is the most interesting Kansas season that we've had in quite a while and that I'm not sure that normally you go in and you're like, well, gosh, Kansas may win one game, may compete in one or two others, but you really feel like a foundation is getting set up to where they can compete in some of these games. It's just a question of, you know, will they have enough to get across that finish line at and close it out. And to, to answer your original question from, you know, 45 minutes ago, <laughs> um, I think that, uh, I think West Virginia is the game that, that kind of jumps out at me. It's so early in the season. Kansas returns more starters than anybody in the Big 12. You add in the top 25 transfer class. And I don't want to say Kansas is an old team, but it's an experienced team all of a sudden. And, and so, when you, when you look at that game being that early, even though it's on the road, I, I think there's a chance for a surprise there. I think Texas Tech is one where we don't really know, you know, what the Red Raiders are, are going to look like. You know, we know that Joey McGuire has, has done a great job, you know, bringing energy and everything else. Their recruiting class is spectacular. We just saw that they're getting all these facilities, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything on third and seven. And I think McGuire has been a good coach in the past, but he hasn't been a head coach at this level. And so I think that's another team with some uncertainty there. Iowa State's such a fascinating team because 
you lose all these guys that basically helped Iowa State achieve a top 10 preseason ranking, you know, which is not a sentence I ever thought I would say. And, and they really used that well on the recruiting trail in the last couple classes. And so they have sort of this underlying group of young talent. The question is just, will it, will it be ready? Will it develop? You know, when, when do those guys become the guys that are out there making plays for them on Saturdays? And so that's another game that looking at it right now, if you're saying, hey, Kansas may have a chance to, to swipe one here or there, that's another game that's interesting to me. Well, more long-term for KU to be that possible bowl team or grow into what Lance Leipold is, is trying to do and, and bring up this program for KU. Obviously, KU, as I mentioned, would have to surpass some other programs in the conference uh, from a year-in, year-out standpoint. So from, from that view of things, from the program view of it, who do you think would be the most vulnerable for that? Yeah, I think, I think West Virginia is the team that jumps out and where you kind of say, hey, maybe this, maybe this thing isn't quite working out. And I know that they've had different issues there. You know, at some points it, it was, you know, Daggy, the quarterback. At other points, you know, I think West Virginia, one year that Daggy was quarterback, led college football in, in drop passes. And, you know, they had like the second least amount of time to throw in the Big 12. So you couldn't put it all there, but it, it does feel like, there's been a little bit of, of maybe a backslide, and, and that's why I thought the game with Kansas last year was maybe even a little bit informative. And I get it was the last game of the season. You know, a lot of different things could happen. But Kansas played that game with one running back, and it wasn't Devin Neal. And you wonder if Kansas had been a little bit closer to full strength, and certainly the the Jayhawks have filled out their backfield since then, you wonder if the result would have been a little bit different last year. And so West Virginia is the team that really jumps out where you say, hey, this is this is a team that's, that's maybe backsliding a little bit. Like I said, there's a little bit of uncertainty with Iowa State as those young guys start to come in. Um, if they don't pan out for, for whatever reason, that could be a team in there. And, and there's just we don't know what to expect with Texas Tech. The recruiting class, like I said, is is excellent. They're they're doing a really nice job of, of building for the future. But if you're asking me, hey, can Kansas go bowling in 2023? I'm not entirely sure what that Red Raider team is going to look like in terms of you know being opposition to that Kansas team and whether Kansas would be able to beat them. Uh, we've been doing our, or we just started yesterday, our KU football position previews and, and kind of deep dives. Yesterday we did the quarterbacks. Today, coming up in the next segment, we're going to do the running backs, uh, starting with the quarterback position. Uh, this has got to be the you know best KU you know as a program you probably feel about the quarterback position going into a season a while. Obviously, Carter Stanley had a really good year for KU in 2019, but I don't know if you knew that was going to happen coming into it. And it's not just that you feel comfortable where Jalen Daniels was at the end of last season. It's that you feel like even if Jalen Daniels does get hurt at some point, like uh, we're not seeing a lot of backup quarterbacks sticking around very long in college football with the transfer portal, but you do have Jason Bean, who had some inconsistencies, but if he's your backup, I, I think you feel pretty confident confident about the one-two there. Uh, how do you kind of view the KU football quarterback position coming into the year in, in comparison to the other teams in the conference? Well, it's certainly the most proven that, that KU has had. As far as you know, excitement level going in, 
it, and this is going to sound bad, but it's probably only matched by the, hey, we just brought in Dane Christ and Jake Heaps, you know, <laughs> over the next couple of years, which, you know, did not quite uh, pan out maybe the way that, that they had hoped. But, you know, most teams in the Big 12 are starting a newcomer, either a, a flat-out new starter, you know, with, with a guy like Hunter Deckers at Iowa State, or you're starting a guy like Dylan Gabriel at Oklahoma who transferred in, or, or Quinn Ewers at Texas. And so Kansas has a unique spot in that not many teams in the Big 12 have a starting quarterback who started there last year, and even fewer have two that they feel pretty good about. And, and that's the thing that I think Jalen Daniels played so well at, at the end of the year, and, and I don't think that – it should be any surprise that Jalen Daniels would be the favorite or, or have that job or, or whatever else based on the way he played. But Jason Bean did a lot of really good things over the course of the season. And he did it even while the offensive system, you know, probably wasn't all the way in because of when they took the jobs, um, because of when they took the head coaching job, even with, you know, the fact that guys were still learning where they were going, and, and even with some of the competition that he played against. He really had some nice moments in his first year as a starter at Kansas. And so uh, I do think that Kansas probably has, if you're just looking at the starting quarterback position and measuring, you know, Jalen Daniels straight up against other starters in the Big 12, I don't know that you would have him quite as high because there are guys who have, who have proven or, or done it over the course of a full season. But I think when you include Jason Bean in that and say this is this is the quarterback room, uh, I'm not entirely sure Kansas doesn't have a top five quarterback room in the Big 12 right now, which is a little bit different. But it, like I said, you, you the old saying goes that if you have two quarterbacks, you don't have any, but Kansas has its starting quarterback and has a second quarterback with starting experience that, that they like and feel good about. And that's just, that's a luxury. Not a lot of teams have. Yeah. It's, it's uh pretty crazy. The turnaround from just even a year ago or a lot of those years in, in the uh, sure. last decade plus for, for KU. He is Kevin Flaherty, 24 seven sports. Kevin, I appreciate you taking some time out of your day as always, man. All right. Thanks a lot, Derek. All right. That's Kevin Flaherty. Check out his work again with 24-7 Sports. I'm Derek Johnson with Lane Gillespie. Two hours down, one to go. Let's get into that running back preview coming up next. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. We are brought to you by Homefield Apparel. Homefield, a premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis, has incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs because they dig through the archives of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments. The Kansas Collection has 14 pieces of apparel, including t-shirts, hoodies, crewnecks, and they are some of the most comfortable things that you will wear, plus they look really cool. And they just released, well, not just, but after the national championship, they released a national championship shirt. Use the code ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK. That's ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK, all one word, and you'll get 15%, 15% off your first order. That's right. Code Rock Chalk Sports Talk, all one word for 15% off with home field apparel on your first order. Five o'clock hour, you're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on KLWN. We did our KU football quarterback position preview yesterday, and as we just talked with Kevin Flaherty, 
Like you can make an argument. They have, if things go right for them, especially with Jalen Daniels, they have a top half position um, in the Big 12. And that is uh, quite a boost for KU if that ends up being the case. Um, the position we're going to get to today is running backs. And this might be the best position for KU on the team. It certainly has a ton of talent, especially with the top you know, four or five guys on the roster. So you lose Velton Gardner last year. That was a mid-season loss, so it's not really an off-season loss um, because you overcame that over the course of the season. But then you lose Amori Pesek-Hickson, who transfers away, showed some uh, flashes as, as a true freshman, didn't play as much last year, played kind of sparingly. Uh, not huge losses, especially when you compare it to what you brought in at the other end. I mean, the only reason, oh, okay, I wouldn't say the only reason, but one of the big reasons why Amari got more playing time towards the end of the season was because of Devin Neal's injury. Correct. Um, and he was he's a guy that I I, still, I I don't even remember where he ended up. I, I still think that he has a bright future to him, so that's unfortunate that you don't have him. But again, given the guys you brought in, like he wasn't going to have much room for playing time this year. He didn't really have much last year, again, outside of when Devin Neal was injured to where it makes sense for kind of all parties there. Here are the guys that return. Devin Neal, he's going to be a uh, sophomore for KU. Obviously could have three more years of play, but the way that he looks, uh, you kind of wonder if it's just going to be this year, next year, and then off to the NFL draft. But he's also a baseball player. I don't know if that factors in at all in terms of him maybe wanting to stick around for four years or whatnot. Um, Kai Thomas is a transfer from Minnesota, former uh, you know four-star recruit from the Topeka area. He is a redshirt sophomore transferred in after not just coming from another Power 5 program with Minnesota and the Big Ten, but he led them in rushing yards. This wasn't a situation where he just wasn't getting enough playing time. And, you know, I, I remember asking him, this will come into play later in this conversation here, the running back preview, um, what's part of the reason you wanted to come here? Like, did you want more more playing time or what? Because he did seem to get a good amount of playing time there. It wasn't, you know, 200-plus carries, but... It was still over 150 carries for him, and it was just he just wanted to be closer to home and and be back closer to family and everything. Certainly, he'll have that happen. Um, Tory Lachlan returns after being a quarterback when he first came into KU, then moving to receiver at the beginning of the season, and because of KU's kind of shortage of running backs when Velton Gardner left with, with some injuries to guys like Daniel Hyshaw, they moved him to running back, and he was actually he was willing to sacrifice his body and, and made some big kind of. Uh, plays for KU is like a pass blocking running back. He obviously, you know, you can catch passes if you're former receiver playing running back. And he gave KU some uh, good good snaps and everything at the running back position. He's a redshirt junior. He technically has three years left because one of those was the COVID year. He again could could provide you more depth. I don't know if the the idea is to keep him at running back because you have so many of these other guys or move him back to receiver where he was. But the point is, you know, you can get some running back snaps out of him if you need to. Daniel Highshaw is a redshirt sophomore, and he actually has four years left because um, the COVID year. He was injured last season, took a medical redshirt. True freshman season was obviously that COVID year. Big power running back. Savion Morrison is a redshirt sophomore. He is a transfer from Nebraska, former four-star recruit. And then you have uh, a, a collection of some others uh, Malik Johnson, redshirt sophomore, Jack Codwell, redshirt sophomore, DeAndre Thomas, redshirt freshman. I don't know which of that group are are walk-ons and which aren't, but those are guys that are more, you know, break glass in case of emergency that you hope you don't get to because when you have Devin Neal, Kai Thomas, Daniel Hyshaw, Savion Morrison, Tory Lachlan, uh, that's a lot of guys you would have to get through to, to yeah. get down to those. Okay, um, so 
if you notice a theme in, in everything that I just mentioned there, and, and this is pretty important for KU, only Lockman, Lachlan, excuse me, of that group, unless you count academic year, right? If you're a redshirt sophomore, technically you're a junior. Uh, but just in terms of eligibility on the football field, Lachlan is the only one that's an upperclassman. Right. So that means that not only is KU in really good shape in terms of the talent and how productive this running back room could be this year, that means they should be really good next year and in 2024 as well. Yeah, exactly. And Tory Lachlan has shown his true colors, and he's he's done a pretty fa uh, fascinating job so far with KU. And, you know, even with him being an upperclassman, he has three years left, which is uh, which is that it basically just sounds like he's a sophomore when reality redshirt junior. So technically a senior in the classroom as well. So he could honestly be running at KU until he's 24. Returning production of note for KU, Devin Neal, 158 carries, 707 yards. It's good for four and a half yards per carry last year in his true freshman season. Started a bit slower. That was partially because the offensive line was struggling to get openings for him. And then they started to get a little bit more in sync. Devin Neal started to hit, you know, uh, figure out what was more wanted of him in the offense. And he really picked it up as the season went on. Um, he had three 100-yard rushing games, the Duke game, the Oklahoma game. That's the one that really comes to mind when he almost helped them pull that big upset there. And then the Texas game that obviously he had a big hand in KU winning down in Austin. He had uh, four touchdowns. Mm -hmm. Jason Bean had 92 carries for 400 yards and two touchdowns. Now, he's not a running back as part of this group, but that is worth mentioning. And who knows? Maybe we do see Jason Bean in sometimes at running back. We, we saw him for a snap or two at the end of last year kind of come in to do just that. Tory Lachlan had 36 carries for 117 yards, two touchdowns. And then you had Daniel Hyshaw, who did not play last year. He was injured out all season. But 2020, as a true freshman, had 52 carries, 229 yards, so about four and a half per carry and two touchdowns. Then you have the two transfers, Kai Thomas, Last year at Minnesota, 166 carries, 824 yards. That's five yards a carry. He had six touchdowns, six receptions as well. And in the final game of the season and of his Minnesota career, he had 21 carries for 144 yards against West Virginia in the bowl game. Also had a touchdown. He earned MVP of the bowl victory for Minnesota. And that was one of five 100-yard rushing games for him. He also had it against Indiana, Iowa, Northwestern, and Maryland. Obviously, a very proven uh, talent and commodity that comes into the backfield. And then Savion Morrison, also from the Big Ten. He was at Nebraska in 2021. He had 30 carries for 116 yards, a little under four per carry. Three touchdowns, also had three catches on the season. So it's tough to, to kind of figure out, you know, how, how are all the carries? How is this all going to get allotted out between the guys? I think from what I kind of assume of the depth chart, and obviously this is before we get into camp and, and things can happen, I'm just assuming like Devin Neal and Kai Thomas are going to kind of rotate. I I, don't, I think I it's going to be too. yeah. I think it's going to be less of like a, this guy's the starter and this guy's the backup. Like obviously somebody will be named the starter. Um, I just envision both guys being a, a one-two punch. Maybe you know Devin Neal gets a few more carries here or there than Kai Thomas, but you know both guys are really good. I, I think both guys are going to get a, a sizable role here. Savion Morrison is someone who you know had a chance to catch up with him and he was a guy who he kind of models his game after he said D'Anthony Thomas and D'Anthony Thomas is a guy if we remember him at you know Oregon with the Kansas City Chiefs who 
specifically more with Oregon. I think that's more pertinent here. With the Chiefs, he was just receiver and, and return guy. Uh, with Oregon, they would line him up at, at running back. He'd get maybe five to ten carries a game. He would catch a few passes. He would get a couple jet sweeps. He would get some screen passes thrown his way. And then he would be an all-purpose guy, returning kicks, returning punts, whatever you need him to do. Um, I think that, that makes a lot of sense for Savion Morrison. If you're going to have Devin Neal and Kai Thomas eating up a ton of carries as well, you know, there may only be a handful of carries available for Savion Morrison, but uh, there's been talk about you could use him in certain situations at a receiver position. You could use him in the slot. You could use him in, in passing downs as a running back. You could use him in two-back sets. You could use him on those jet sweeps and, and screen passes. You can use him in kick return and punt return. Basically, he comes in as kind of that all-purpose back. And then Daniel Highshaw you use in a you know, power back situation. If it's third and two, he comes in to kind of be your your battering ram to move forward or uh, goal to go situations. He's he's kind of your guy there. And then he also provides you depth. If there's a game that Devin Neal or Kai Thomas is injured or if those guys are, are tired, they've been carrying the ball a lot, right? He comes in and, and he kind of provides more depth there. Yeah, uh, I, I think this team has a running back for any situation and I love to see that. Yeah, I would love to see these guys complement each other too, especially uh, Devin Neal and Kai Thomas. And part of me does wonder if they're gonna go with a two running back system. Like, I wouldn't say have them in for every play, but definitely like divvy out the carries and both of them be strong for the uh, for the team in the run game uh, in a big way. Obviously, I don't think the yards and the touchdowns are going to be fifty fifty, but I still think that both of them could get. A lot of playing time, a lot of carries, and be resourceful in any which way. And I also see both of them in a lot of situations as a receiving back as well. Uh, like if you have to fire a screen out of the flats, or just a slip, or just a simple slip screen, or something like that. And I think that honestly, one through four, maybe five as well with High Shot. But yeah, Neil, Thomas, Lachlan, and Morrison. There's no shortage of receiving backs on this team, in my opinion. The key question for me is, can everyone get enough touches to stay happy here? And, and how much does that matter? I, I don't know. But, like, for instance, last year, KU averaged 36 rushes per game. Um, in total, they ran it 430 times. That does include quarterback runs, which we know in college, like QB sacks, count to that. So it's, it's probably less than that. But let's just go with that number, 36 runs per game that you have to divvy out. Let's say... We take away two of those for QB sacks a game or something like that. So you're at 34 runs per game. Uh, then you take away a handful to the quarterback. You're at about 30 runs per game that you can give out to the running backs. That doesn't sound like a lot, right? That's, you know, 14 to Devin Neal. That's 12 to Kai Thomas. Mm -hmm. That's four for everyone else. That, that sounds like a very low number um, for everyone. Now, if you do look back to Lance Leipold at Buffalo, so let's go back to 2019. I don't want to look at 2020 because that was the shortened season due to COVID. They averaged 51 rushes per game. That was a total of 644 rushes over the course of the season. Now, it's, it's, it's not an exact science to pluck from that because the big difference isn't just that they had the... Um, I don't know, the, the scheme and, and everything established for Buffalo in... 2019, whereas KU was still kind of working on the fly to establish it this past season. It's also that, you know, to run the ball more, to be a more effective run team, you have to stay on the field longer. Yeah. KU had a lot of three and outs last year. 
KU had a lot of short drives last year. That Buffalo team was one of the best offenses in the MAC. They're staying on the field longer. They're getting more opportunities to carry the ball. They're getting you know longer drives and everything. Um, so let's say it's somewhere in between. Let's say I mean if you you just split the difference between you know the the thirty six and the fifty one, you get to away fifty of four combination of QB sacks and QB runs, which again that that might be even low because I don't know what the situation for Jason Bean's going to be. Like, how many times is Jalen Daniels going to carry? I don't know. It might be closer to 100 between all those. But let's say you have 450 carries to divvy out between those guys. You could give Devin Neal about 180 carries. That would be about 15 a game, which even then, I mean, the, the way that we think of Devin Neal, like this all Big 12 future pro running back saying, oh, why would you not give him 20 plus carries a game? But when you have this good group of running backs, right. you want to keep them fresh. 15 a game, that, I, I guess that could be doable. I mean, if you average, I don't know what, five yards a carry at that point, it would be on average like 15 carries for 75 yards a game, which 75 yards a game over a 12-game season is like 900 yards over the course of the season. I don't know. That, that could be a, a proper total there. Um, let's say Kai Thomas gets uh, 100 and... Uh, I don't know, like 160. Let's go yeah, let's go one. Uh, I don't think it would yeah, be as much as Devin Neal. No. Um, I agree with you, but I do also agree it's going to be a close number. Yeah. So let's say if, I don't know, if he gets like 14 a game, so that's one less carry a game, then you'd be looking at like 170 carries a game, something, or over the course of the season. The thing so, is, I think also throughout, uh, you know, like uh, like early practices and stuff like that, mm-hmm. I think they'll – and in the early games, I think what they'll do is uh, get more of a feel of who does what better in this scenario or that scenario. Like if it's like a first and 10 or if it happens to be a second and 20 and you want to get some yards yeah, back, yeah, who, yeah. Could you, who could you uh, count on or something like that? Yeah, to be clear, they're not going into the season and doing what I'm doing now and saying we need to get this guy this many carries, this guy that. Like they're going to have different situations for them. I'm just saying this is the total that you have to give out. Right. And this is like it. it It's trying to figure out, like, how would that be divvied out and just trying to get kind of a visual exercise of that there's not enough carries for, you know, a bunch of guys to average 20 carries per game or something like that. Um, If you do that and you have 180 carries to Devin Neal, 170 to Kai Thomas, you know, about 15 a game and 14 a game, which, again, like knowing how good those players are, saying they're only going to get that many touches per game doesn't sound like a ton. But at that point, you're only left with, like, 100 carries left to give out let's say 50 go to Savion Morrison that's only four a game Daniel Hyshaw gets 50 that's only four a game for him all of a sudden you're at the 450 and again that like that doesn't even fully account for if you have more quarterback carries with Jalen Daniels or Jason Bean or whatnot or that doesn't even fully account for if um KU is closer to what they were this past season in terms of how many runs they have per game because they're not on the field as long so realistically, that means you maybe even take the under on all those numbers that I just said. And if that's the case, like it's tough to keep everyone happy. It's it's tough to at the end of the year tell if that was just for instance what ended up happening. Like it's tough to tell Daniel Highshaw not to transfer or Savion Morrison not to transfer. And I, you never know what like people are looking for and and what their their roles are expected to be and and how much uh, you know they care right. about them being the bell cow or whatnot um and at the same point in time like if you're KU it's 
you know, it's not Lance Leipold's job. I mean, it sort of is because you sort of want to play politics and, and you never want to lose good players. But also at the same point in time, like you're running a football program that is built on competition. And so you're going to play the best players. The best players are going to get the most playing time. And if guys who are, you know, the fourth or fifth string are not proving to be good enough to earn those carries, like that's not on you to all of a sudden just force feed them to keep them in the program. But again, ideally you would like to keep a very talented running back room. That's young. Mm -hmm. You would like to keep that together. You would like to keep that happy. So that's kind of my biggest question there. It's how do you keep everyone happy? It's going to be tough. That's all I can say. Uh, it, the, I think the only way you can is just it's not going to be in week one. It'll probably be in like week six when you figure out who does better in, what's, in what scenario. I think that's just the truth of the matter. So the bottom line, this is probably KU's best position group. Um, it's good from Big 12 standards. Uh, Kevin said, you know, if all goes right for the KU quarterbacks, like that could be a top half. I, I think I look at the Big 12 uh running back groups and and there's some really good ones um you graduated some some good running backs a guy like Brees Hall is gone but like you look across the big 12 there's some really really good running backs out there whether it's B. John Robinson at Texas whether it's Deuce Vaughn at Kansas State and you know you can go to other schools as well but there's no reason this KU running back room shouldn't be a top half group in the big 12 and if you're talking about your quarterback group can be in that top half potentially and the running back group is in the top half that's a nice little battery to start from for KU when they're looking to improve on their level of play, when they're looking to be a more competitive team, earn some more wins and stuff like that. There's depth, there's star power, there's youth. They have everything that you could want in that running back room for this program right now uh, to be competitive, to fit into their scheme, and I'm really excited to see what this group of guys can do. With Lane Gillespie, I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, depending on it. About half past five, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. With Lane Gillespie, I am Derek Johnson. We've got a quick list to get to you for today. It is National uh, Paper Bag Day, which is a very weird day to have a, yeah. a, a day celebrated <laughs> and devoted to. Um, so it got me thinking, what are the best and worst types of bags? There's a lot of bags. And if you're yeah. from Minnesota or Canada, you would say beg. Beg. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, we're going to do the top five worst, followed by the top five best bags. Lane, cue the music. All right, let's get the list started. Number five on the worst. Number five. The worst before the best to uh, end on a high note. Fifth worst type of bag, a plastic grocery bag. Yep. They're not good <laughs> no for the environment, right? So, that's a reason alone. Um, I also never really know what to do with all of them. You just collect all these grocery bags at home. You end up just throwing them away. Again, it's bad for the environment. Um, I, I know some people who, you know, if you have a dog, you can use them for, like, picking up dog poop and stuff. But, yeah, outside of that, uh, not great. Some countries have plastic bags banned. Mm. So, yeah, that's something. Number four. Paper bags. I know it's National Paper <laughs> Bag Day. I'm sorry. Paper bags are, are not great. Happy um, National Paper Bag Day. Yeah, you right? suck. Yeah, you suck. <laughs> Happy birthday. I hate you. Um, the paper bags stink man they just like uh, the one thing that plastic bags have over paper bags is that they at least stay together and you can grab so many of them like you can do the thing where you have like eight plastic eight grocery bags and you just like somehow will your way into the doorway and you just make one trip to the car can't do that with paper bags and and with paper bags 
uh, unless you hold it from the bottom, you're fearful that it's going to break, yep. it could crash through and everything. And if paper bags get wet, you're screwed. Yeah, <laughs> I guess they are better for the environment, I'm sure, but how much yeah. better are they? Because you're still killing trees to make them, so sorry, paper bags. Number three. Third worst bag, a purse or handbag getting stolen. We see it a lot in movies. I'm sure it happens a lot in real life. Um, you know, you go to New York City or a crowded area. If you have a purse or a handbag and it gets stolen, that stinks. Now, purses and handbags, great on their own. They hold stuff for people um, and, and great and everything. But when they get stolen, that makes it really bad. So third worst. So you're just putting it in the uh, possibility of it getting stolen and not just the bag itself? Yeah, it's the action okay. of the bag getting stolen. Gotcha. Number two. Second worst bag, bags under your eyes. <laughs> That's yep. <laughs> not a good sign. It means either you're getting, you know, you're older or you're not sleeping well or you're stressed. Whatever it is, bags under your eyes do not represent something good happening. So that's why it's the second worst types of bag. Number one. The worst type of bag. I don't mean to get like too cryptic here, but it's a body bag, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're not wrong. I don't want to go too much in depth there. It's just, you know, body bags, not good. That means someone died. I don't want yeah. to see a body bag. <laughs> okay, let's uh, end on a high note. Let's get to the best types of bags. Number five. Tote bags. Tote bags are great because you can use them for a lot of different things. Like you just going over for a day party to someone's house and you just want to, you know, bring some stuff in a bag perfect for right. that perfect um you you know want to carry some stuff for um you know you're dropping off or you're bringing your dog with you to to stay a night at a hotel or at someone's house or something and you need to put you know some of the, some of the things for your dog or, or uh you put it in a tote bag you need to pack some toys for your kid on a, on a road trip they're, or whatnot they're just really they're reliable and easy to use exactly honestly. and it's just easy um you don't have to worry about them breaking tote bags great Number four. Golf bags. In at number four. Love to golf. How awful would it be to golf if you just had to carry <laughs> around all your clubs with like your hand or like put like a rubber band around them to I keep them together? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, thank you. Uh, so golf bags, great. They don't just hold your clubs. They have so many different pockets that you can hold your tees and your glove and you can put whatever else you want in there. Golf bags, great. Number three. Number three is the duffel bag. Duffel bags, great for going on trips because, you know, it, it's not like a big hunking suitcase. Uh, to be clear, I don't have suitcases on here because those are not technically bags. I know we consider like, you know, luggage bags. And from that standpoint, you could consider it that. Um, I didn't really. But like when you have a duffel bag, it allows you to be more flexible, right? You can pack the duffel bag full if you want. Uh, but it just allows you to not have to carry that big hunking bag that's metal and everything. Yeah. Uh, the one negative to duffel bags, you don't have the roller. I mean, there are some duffel yeah. bags that, that do have that kind of built in, and those are like the specialized duffel bags. But it's not just about travel for duffel bags that gets them on this list. Duffel bags are great for, you know, you want to change your clothes to, to go work out at the gym or something like that. Duffel bags, absolutely great. Number two. Also, duffel bags are what, like, people... In whether they're like selling drugs or like when we think about like <laughs> college athletes getting paid, you think about like a duffel bag with the money in it. Okay, uh, number two is a bag of chips. Chips are delicious. Delish. 
everybody has their different types of chips that they like. You know, there's different brands, different flavors. Chips are great. As long as it's not in a can, then I'll like it. Yeah. I'm looking at you, Pringles. You don't like Pringles? I like Pringles. It's just when it's in a can, it's very difficult. Yeah, your hand's stuck yes. in there trying to get the ones at the give bottom a, and everything. Give me a Pringles bag and I'll feel better. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the branding, man. You can't take that away. But yeah, bag of chips, number two. Number one. Number one. is the backpack. Yes. The backpack is the most versatile of all bags. You can put it on your shoulders. You can bring it with you on a hike. You can bring it with you to school. You can bring it with you to work. You can bring it with you on a trip. You can pack like stuff for the trip in there. You can pack valuables in it. Like you can do so much with a backpack. You can put pens and paper in there. Like it is the most versatile of all bags and you don't have to carry it like a duffel bag. You just put it on your back. It's great. Yeah. I'm still using one to this day. I just, mm. uh, obviously, I'm not, we're not in school anymore. No. I see you with a backpack. There's uh. one re- literally right next to you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they're just so reliable and they're just perfect. Yep. I don't want to just carry all my stuff, my notebook and my computer everywhere. Right. Put it in a backpack. Yeah. You're good to go. Yeah. That is your worst and best bags here on Rock yeah. Chalk Sports Talk. Yeah, there's a, there's some certain kind of bags <laughs> I'm surprised we're not on this list, but you know. Any, any come to mind? Uh, no, because I'll get in trouble. Okay. <laughs> he is uh, Lane Gillespie. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk on KLWN. Depend on it. Hey, we needed to end on a high note.